Why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? You really want to know? It might make you uncomfortable and even sound a little crazy. But if I tell you, you can't go back to sleep. Here's the truth. You're under attack. We all are. Our children, our families, our communities. The saddest part is, they're only successful because we refuse to pay attention. For centuries, even millennia, they've conspired in the shadows and worked behind the scenes and hidden the truth behind cascading waves of lies and distractions. Can we be victorious? The fusion cell. I'll be your warrior guide, retired Green Beret Master Sergeant Jeremy Brown, with former Police Sergeant Jen. Do we have all the answers? Absolutely not. But together, we'll find them. Now, wake up. We've got work to do. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> that well, just happened. <laughs> Man. Oh my God. Just so that everybody knows what's going on right now, we have Jeremy Brown on the line calling in from Citrus County, Florida. And then I also have with me Ivan Raiklin. And so that's what's going on here. It's a surprise to Jeremy. I told her if you give me any information, you know I'm going to get it right. <laughs> Jeremy Mother Flower Brown. <laughs> How are you doing, sir? Ivan Raikland here. So what's going on? First off, I got to start off with, oh, I, ap- I apologize. This is long overdue. For um, what? I'm trying to... I mean, I've been following what's been going on with you pretty closely. And anytime you put something out publicly, I've tried to consume it. But having said that, I'm trying to figure out a path to exonerate every single J6er in the collective. And the way that works, when when you listen to what I have to say, you're going to start to understand how that works. Uh, unfortunately, it's been taking me about two and a half years to explain to influencers that you everybody was persecuted and prosecuted politically and that's how we unravel is through the political mechanism known as the capitol police board because you're persecuted before it even started over at the doj and the fbi it all started with yogananda Pittman, thomas debias and then above them meaning the house sergeant at arms the senate sergeant at arms and the speaker of the house and the senate majority leader so if they didn't want to prosecute you or persecute you, they do exactly what they just did with the insurrection in October over in the Cannon Building, meaning nothing. They would do the right. same thing like they did last week uh, over at the DNC, which is nothing. But because those the pe- the people that are going to be part of the retribution to them at at the end of the day, uh, I say we're going to have retribution no matter what, whether we win next year's election or not. It's coming. And they know that. And so in order to slow roll it at a minimum, they had to weaponize the legislative branch through the Capitol Police Board to try and neuter, slow roll, stop all of us that expose their illegal election, that expose their illegal mandates, that expose their illegal uh, censorship, 
the entire scheme. And people like you and me, no matter if we're in or out, are not going to stop exposing them. So for that, one, I apologize. Two, I respect you for continuing to stay positive, resilient, and very vocal, even under these circumstances. Well, and I, well, and I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, look, you can do anything when you have the right uh, mental uh, uh, perspective and the appropriate mindset. And what I've been trying to explain to people all along is that the uh, you know, this is way more, and, and honestly, I mean, I think obviously the Capitol Police mechanisms and the congressional, uh, you know, House and Senate mechanisms uh, definitely are part of this uh, disclosure and exposure operation. Now, granted, I mean, the Senate Sergeant of Arms is dead mysteriously, and nobody really knows why. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think they are key witnesses, if not participants. And what what I have come to believe after talking to, you know, not not only you know people that saw things that may not have known what they saw, right? Uh, but you know, I just recently did an interview uh, with a gentleman who said that he's actually interviewed special operators, special mission unit members uh, that have said to to him that that, that they were there. Uh, there's been many numerous, uh, you know. What, who's what's his name? Can you disclose his name? Uh, gosh, yeah, this, his, the the guy I interviewed with is Tommy. Uh, he was a Tom uh, Dale Comstock uh, is who actually got us in contact with each other. But I mean, he didn't mention the names of the guys that he's talked to. Uh, but it's definitely uh, it's definitely a list. Uh, that I would like to get uh, in touch with because uh, I think if the participants do not start to come forward, I mean, look, we've already got FBI whistleblowers who also are kind of on the outside looking in saying, look, this is the overall climate of our agency. This is, you know, the, you know, the, the one FBI whistleblower, I can't remember his name either. It wasn't Steve Prem, but the other one, they literally testified to Congress that, the bad guys are in charge, right? I mean, this is an. You're talking about O'Boyle, referring to. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that was uh, was him with uh, his testimony that I heard. And so you have an actual agent literally sitting there in front of Congress under oath, testifying that, hey, from my and, and it's the for those that are listening, it, you know, an agent is the equivalent of an operator, right? Boots on the ground, the actual tactical mm -hmm. uh, executor of operational and strategic plans, right? And when they are calling out, you know, their leadership as the bad guys you know, in front of, you know, ultimate leadership, which is Congress, you know, that that is, I mean, that is a momentous occasion. And so I think mm -hmm. the actual participants, those that were there, even if they were from, let's just say they were conducting counter surveillance or, or whatever the excuse for them to be there was, which would likely not actually be the real reason why they were there, um, until they start coming out and making their stories known, uh, it's going to be extremely hard to convince the American mm -hmm. people. Uh, hey, that, Jer uh, Jeremy, before I start, how thing. much time do you have? Uh, you're going to have to talk to Jen. She's the one that runs this thing. I'm just... I'm just the the uh, the hired help. 
It's 15 minute increments <laughs> and uh, we usually go for an yeah, hour, but if you need increment. more, you know, whatever. Oh, no, but what I'm saying, you, you have the freedom and flexibility to stay on for a couple hours. Sure, and I'll make yeah. it up to you if you allow us to go for two hours. Okay. Okay, so here's where we start. Oh, you know, boy. So take notes You're in big trouble, me. Jen. I do. Okay. I'm prepared to copy. Prepare to copy. Here we go. This is what happened. I've spent 10,000 hours, and I'm informed by reading all the J6 committee transcripts listening multiple times the 10 j6 select committee which is the uh the cover-up committee's hearings uh having let's just say interviews interactions discussions with former acting secretary of defense chris miller former capitol police chief stephen sund Tar lieutenant Tarek johnson on multiple occasions other insider whistleblowers within capitol police insider whistleblowers at FBI at DHS within the federal air marshals, quiet skies program, people on the inside air calling out air marshals, reading Chris Miller's book, reading chief son's book. Let's see what else interacting at a very substantive level with the house administration committee, which is the committee on the house side that has oversight over the Capitol police and the Capitol police board. The most senior level staffers and members of those of that committee, as well as weaponization, judiciary. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, Homeland Security. Right. <clears throat> so I don't know of anybody else that has been consuming all that, it, as well as everything that's publicly available. Right. All the different things. To include. And by the way, some of the stuff that I'm saying, it's the first time I'm publicly saying it. Okay. So the next thing is uh, the Speaker of the House. Yes, I have interacted with the Speaker of the House in the past. The new one. The old one would run from me, okay? Which le leads you to believe that, you know, the, the assumption to make is when you run from me, you're hiding something. If you're not running from me and you're communicating with me, you're probably not hiding anything, especially now. I mean, you kind of know who I am. And if you're doing something wrong, I'm going to expose you and I could care less what political party you are. So if you're running from me, both party representatives, I'm coming for you even harder, right? That means you're shedding, you're forcing me to investigate you further. Now, I've also participated and attended all the hearings that you saw, the major ones of all those committees that I listed and mentioned. Talk to members beforehand, during break and afterwards. Uh, that's kind of the body of knowledge that I have coupled with just investigating all the videos, interviews, going to different hearings within the DC court uh, for the J6 defendants, as well as interacting with some of the key people that you're, you know, you guys are aware of, whether it's Trennis or Stop Hate or Gary McBride or Tommy Tatum or Mickey Whithoff. Basically, the list goes on, right? I've compiled all that to come up with the following. January 6th, was a, and you're going to understand what I'm saying by this, Jeremy. January 6th was a specifically run covert action by the Capitol Police Board's leadership. And what does that look like? Basically, eight people are the ones that 
Well, I should say there are four people on the Capitol Police Board. There's a Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader, which is six more. And then you have basically two other individuals from the Congress that round out the eight people that either run the Capitol Police Board, make all the decisions for the Capitol Police, and provide oversight and scrutiny over the Capitol Police and the Capitol Police Board. Those were the individuals in some way, shape, or form that ran that covert action, conducted the Fed's direction on January 6th, and then were able to continue to cover that up from that point forward. Now, I'm not saying that's all the people that were involved, but those are the people that had to have been involved at least uh, unwittingly eventually uh, for it to transpire. So let's, I'd like to name those names. Now, before, oh, before I name names, for those that don't know what a covert action is, it's where, I mean, some people shorthand call it a false flag. It's essentially where you have, in a normal sense, I mean, you can technically say this is not a covert action because a covert action, uh, by definition, is when you have the one president, the president is, pres- how much time we have left? Uh, just a minute on this call, but we'll, we'll call Okay, real quick. Uh, I'll I'll finish fact, let me go. Covert action is a, uh, no, basically. No, I'll call back. So okay. Go ahead and continue. I'll call, I'll call back and uh, Jen will pipe me back in. Okay, sounds good. All right, covert action is basically where you have the president of the United States presented with what's known as a presidential finding, okay? By the way, everything I'm saying is based on research that I've done as a private citizen, Ivan Raikland, based on publicly available information in my personal private capacity time. So, covert action. Presidential finding is essentially a president authorizing a element of the intelligence community, most of the time central intelligence agency, to conduct an operation to benefit U.S. foreign policy interests without the fingerprints to associate that the United States government was behind that operation. The problem is is that the capital, the United States Capitol is a jurisdiction not within the control or influence or authority of the president. So then, this is where Jeremy needs to hear this. Okay. You back? Give me just an incarcerated second. individual at Citrus County, Florida. This call is not private. So this will happen every 15 minutes. And may be monitored. Okay. If you believe this should be a private call, please hang up and follow facility instructions to register this number as a private number. To accept this free call, press 1. To is refuse. this going out live? Thank you for using yes. Securus. You may start the conversation Perfect. now. All right, I'm back. Can you hear me, Jen? Yes. Yeah, so I basically, Jeremy, explained the whole, what what a covert action is, and to summarize, right, it's when the president conducts, writes what's known as a presidential finding, usually tasks the Central Intelligence Agency to go ahead and conduct an action to benefit U.S. foreign policy objectives uh, without having the fingerprints of the U.S. government being behind it, meaning a false flag, right? Now, you can technically say that what happened on January 6th was not a covert action because the president does not have any authority or jurisdictional uh, leverage on the U.S. Capitol, Capitol grounds, etc. Because there's a U.S. U.S. Code, Title II of the United States Code, explains, creates what's known as the Capitol Police Board. 
and then the U.S. Capitol Police. It's the law enforcement entity of the Capitol, Capitol complex, an Article I branch of government law enforcement entity. Okay, this is so important to understand. Now, who is at the very tip top that influences and controls the Capitol Police Board? Well, the statute that made them was a law that was passed by the House and Senate, right? Signed off by the president. But the people that are appointed to the board, by the way, it's a three-person voting board and a one-person that's a non-voting member to round out the four-person board. What does that look like? Well, the Speaker of the House appoints one of the members, and that one member is the House Sergeant-at-Arms. The second member is appointed by the Senate Majority Leader to be the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms. And the third person that is uh, part of the, the Capitol Police Board is the architect of the Capitol. And the way they're appointed is through by the president of the United States and confirmed by the Senate. So you can see that the Senate majority leader has uh, kind of a little bit more influence on what goes on in that Capitol Police Board, meaning the architect uh, after the appointment by the president and the Senate sergeant at arms. OK, so the fourth member who's a non-voting member is the United States Capitol Police chief. OK, so. Any decision as it applies to law enforcement of the Capitol, the Capitol grounds, the House, the Senate, the House buildings, the Senate buildings, and the extended jurisdiction zone of the Capitol Police. There's one zone that's concurrently uh, law enforcement uh, jurisdiction between Capitol Police and the Department of Interior's Park Police, which is west of the Capitol on the National Mall. And south and north and east of the Capitol is a concurrent jurisdiction zone between U.S. Capitol Police and D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. This is all listed in Title II of the United States Code. Jeremy, if you have not read that, I highly urge you and recommend that you learn that intimately as we start to lay down this case. So, understanding that, <clears throat> the Capitol Police Board who appoints them, you'd probably expect that the House Sergeant-at-Arms is loyal to the Speaker and the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms is loyal to the Senate Majority Leader because they do the bidding of those two leaders. So if one political party controls both the House and Senate Sergeants-at-Arms, you already have two-thirds of the voting members of the Capitol Police Board to basically dictate every single decision onto the Capitol Police Chief and further on down the chain, down to the line officer, conducting, patrolling, and executing anything as it applies to law enforcement within the Capitol complex and then beyond in the extended jurisdiction zone. Okay? Does that make sense so far? Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. Okay, so let's go into specifics now. I gave you titles. Now let's go into specific names of individuals. On January 6th, the Capitol Police Board uh, was the following. You had a Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, that had under her the House Sergeant-at-Arms, Paul Irving. Paul Irving had been to that point the Sergeant-at-Arms for Paul Ryan before that and John Boehner before that. As an asterisk, all three of those Speakers of the House are very vocal and adamant anti-Trump individuals, right? 
Right. So you got Paul Irving as the House Sergeant at Arms on January 6th. And according to testimony of Chief Stephen Sund and his book and interactions, he basically said that Paul Irving was a cooperate and graduate sort of guy. Basically, whatever he was told by Nancy Pelosi, he would like a nice little Nazi gopher basically acquiesce to that. And there would be no pushback. And if you look at him and you see his interactions and based on commentary of other people that interacted with him, let's just say he's one of those um, people in positions of leadership that exhibit absolutely no leadership qualities. Does that make sense? It does for me. <laughs> Jeremy, you know, you know, some of the people that I'm talking about, we served with those types. Okay. Now, what about the Senate Sergeant at Arms, Michael Stenger? Well, he was appointed by Mitch McConnell. I almost accidentally mispronounced it with the second letter of the alphabet, but Mitch McConnell. So uh, you're talking about that guy at the, at the beginning that Mr. Stenger, Michael Stenger was, uh, let's just say, Mm, he died uh, just before he was going to testify in June, I believe, of 2022, just before uh, uh, the hearing where he said he had new information related to the January 6th. Meanwhile, you got to remember, though, both of those individuals, Stenger and Irving, the two sergeants at arms, were asked to resign or I should say resigned within days of January 6th. And same thing with Chief Stephen Sund. Okay. Now, Stephen Sund uh, testified in February 2021 of what happened, and he at that time, I don't think, really knew what happened. Well, subsequent to that, to understand about the U.S. Capitol Police leadership. So on January 6th, if somebody was following Ivan Raikland's Twitter, or even not following Ivan Raikland's Twitter, but only following President Trump's Twitter, you would have seen him retweet several tweets of mine. One of those was Operation Pence card, and it, which called on Mike Pence to go ahead and do the duty of defending the Constitution's Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2, and send back to the states what they had transmitted, which were illegally transmitted electors because the underlying elections were completely illegitimate uh, because all of them were run based on the CCP-19 measures. Some people pronounce it COVID-19 measures, right? So I argued in the tweet, and then there was a, a memorandum attached to it that basically left three options for Pence. One, send it back so that the state runs a new election according to their election law and then not violate Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2, and then transmit those electors based on the results of that new election. Then it would have been fully legit. Number two, abstain from sending any electors because either one of them, the Democrat or Republican ones that they transmitted, were not legitimate because the underlying election upon which it was based on was illegitimate. Or option three, have the, the state legislature of that respective state conduct a joint session roll call vote on which electors that state is going to transmit. All three constitutional viable remedies to the illegal election, uh, but none of those have to this day been conducted. So when Trump retweeted that on December 22nd, Pence did nothing on the 23rd. So then we transitioned to January 6th, 
And that's where I started to communicate, like we're doing here, on phone, on text, in person, members of Congress that I know, to explain to them, now that the states have transmitted their electors, all illegitimate, because if you can agree with me on the following, that the states conducted their election outside of their state election law, you now as a federal officer in Congress must do what Mike Pence did not on December 23rd under his obligation of the under the Electoral Count Act back then. You must now object to those electors. And I explained that you don't have to agree with any sort of foreign interference, digital fraud, machine fraud, retail, wholesale fraud, uh, any of that stuff. All you had to agree with me on was that the state conducted their election not according to the state's election law. And as I was talking to folks, every single one of them were like, oh, that's simple. That can withstand anybody's scrutiny. It's easy to explain constitutionally. You don't have to show algorithmic stuff that a judge will never understand or hear. So as I was basically building the case and members of Congress were agreeing, by January 5th, what happened? We had publicly 147 members of the House, 12 members of the U.S. Senate agreeing that uh, they were they publicly said that they were going to object. And those numbers were going up by the minute. So one of the last interviews I did uh, going into January 6th publicly, and this was like, no, I wasn't hiding anything. This is all publicly available. You can see all my podcast tweets. Uh, and I'm going to get to why J6 is important as it relates to this. As I put all that stuff out, Praying Medic asked me a question. He asked, what do you think President Trump meant when he said it's going to be wild? And I said, you know what? If I put my constitutional lawyer hat on, and conduct some First Amendment noises here on this podcast, it would sound something like this. If Nancy Pelosi, or when Nancy Pelosi hears what I'm about to say and understands what I've been doing by communicating with Kevin McCarthy directly, yes, and Mike Pence's chief of staff, Mark Short, directly, yes, and I explained that this is what I recommended those two conduct on January 6th. I recommended that on January 6th, when Arizona is objected to, they go into their, uh, the Senate goes into their chambers, the House remains, they do their two hours of deliberation, and then at the end of it, they hold a vote. But I recommended to Kevin McCarthy to take on the role of the majority state delegation chair, because in the 12th Amendment, it says if no one has 207 or the majority of the electoral votes to be president, it goes into what's known as a contingent election where they vote one state, one vote. Okay. Well, because the Electoral Count Act, which lays out the details of how a joint session is to take place based on the 12th Amendment guidance, doesn't say how to vote on the objection, meaning one person, one vote, or one state, one vote, it's open for interpretation. And because the 12th Amendment doesn't grant uh, any sort of guidance on voting in the joint session other than by state delegation, if it's a contingent election, there's room for interpretation on how the objections should take place. So then it becomes, it's a decision for the House body to make and the Senate body to make on how they're going to vote. I told them, why don't you go ahead and vote one state, one vote instead of one person, one vote on the objection. And if everybody voted by party, it would have been 27 Republican, 
20 Democrat and three tied. So if that occurred, when the House and Senate came back into session, to the joint session after the two hours of debate, it would have been Mike Pence gaveling in and asking, what's the ruling on the objection? And Pelosi or her designee would have said, the objection does not stand on Arizona because we voted 200, whatever it was, 222 to 212. Because I think the one guy from Louisiana died. So it would have been Arizona's 11 electoral votes for Biden would have stood under the Pelosi vote. But then McCarthy would, should have stood up and said, point of order, Mr. Presiding Officer Pence. We actually voted by majority state delegation. And that vote is 27 to 20 to 3. And even if the Democrats said, no, we're not even going to participate in your, from their perspective, sham one state, one vote. The quorum requirement for this style you of vote is two thirds of the states to be represented. And we had 43 states with at least one person from uh, being a Republican from that delegation. So worst case scenario, it would have been a 43 to zero vote to object to the Arizona electors. Imagine doing that to all six contested states and we would have had a re-election. And on the other side of this call, I'll, I'll continue. Okay, awesome. Let me, uh, let me call right back. Okay. The caller has hung up. Very... Does that make sense? Yes. When's your book coming out? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Somebody needs to transcribe all my interviews and put my book together. Yeah, that'd be really. And then I'll just uh, redact it. <laughs> not re not redacted, but edit it. I should say redact yeah. it means taking stuff out. I'll, I'll edit it to make sure it's it's accurate. It would be really interesting to follow you follow you through your journey of you know talking to the speaker, talking to the chief of Capitol Police. You know what I mean? And what new information you garnered from that, and how you started putting this puzzle piece together. Oh, that'd be so much work to kind of go back in my notes and thoughts. And <laughs> I have to get a ghostwriter, you know, know. not Harry Dunn's. That's for sure. <laughs> we'll talk about him too. This will go a couple hours. I'm sorry. Unknown caller. <laughs> An incarcerated individual at Citrus County, Florida. This call is not private. It will be recorded and may be monitored. If you believe this should be a private call, please hang up and follow facility instructions to register this number as a private number to accept recorded both ways. So one to refuse. <laughs> Thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now. All right, Jen, you got me. Yes. All right. Before I continue, uh, Jeremy, I want like you have any questions up to this point? Does that all make sense? No, I mean, look, I. I Look, I've followed your 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 progression through this, uh, at least until the day they arrested me. Uh, I've read Chief Sun's book, at least uh, the first portions of it, where he explains the police board and and okay. how his hands are tied by the political nature of, of things like that. Um, and, yeah, because he, he, he's really seen, benign and in, in basically going after the leadership, the political leadership. He's very uh delicate let's just say when he writes about them well and and that and that's exactly what the, my book report once i finish it in in its entirety will very likely uh say but again i'm, I'm going through it uh, page by page a lot of the uh, ink is being used underlining and taking notes 
and and I firmly believe that there is political involvement, and there's certainly a very political aspect to this. Uh, I think you give uh, you know Republican members of Congress a little bit more credit than I do, because frankly, I believe most of them uh, were, if not aware of what might happen to interrupt their contesting of the vote. Uh, they certainly uh, went in lockstep along with the, you know, let's drop everything because, my God, there was just a domestic terrorism attack uh, immediately following, which is why there was never any further pursuit of the, their all highly anticipated uh, contesting of the vote uh, that was supposed to take place that day, right? So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm following along with the with the what should have happened, right? Mm-hmm. My my point that I always like to make is why didn't it happen? And I think that yeah, yeah, this is where I'm going to get into excuse, right. And I think January six was a convenient yet highly pre-planned excuse, and I do, definitely do not think that it was only the Capitol Police Board that was involved because there are certainly indications, not only from Chief Sun, but also from Congressman uh, Troy Nell in his observations that I read in his book, The Big Fraud. Right, right. I read that as well. Absolutely. There was absolutely pre-planning, pre-coordination and the manipulating of standing operating procedures, guidelines, and policies prior to, and and we're not talking about six months before or six weeks before, we're talking about January 4th, the Secretary of the Army is changing the process and changing the requirements for requesting certain assets, resources, uh, changing the line of authority, and, and basically you know, jumbling up the entire chain of command. And so I don't think that that was by accident at all. Chief Sun talks about uh, Chris Miller, who, you know, I thought should have been a good guy, right? I mean, you've got a, a seasoned combat uh, Green Beret in the position of SecDef or Secretary of Defense, and yet there were gaming scenarios prior to January 6th at the DOD level, which really should not be taking place other than loose contingency operations, right? No, not much more ridiculous than Stuart Rose's, you know, yeah, so coming I'll up say, with Jeremy, I'll say this. Scenario, I agree, right? Every, I will say this about Chief Sun. Everything that he wrote in the book, I agree with based on all my investigations. The one thing that I think he got wrong, and it's based on my interactions also with Miller and some others, as well as senior officials within the D.C. National Guard that I've known and talked to, Chief Sun did not have the ability to perceive or know exactly the decision-making that was going on within between Miller, Milley, Ryan McCarthy, the Secretary of the Army, and then through the D.C. National Guard leadership. What he wrote was an assessment, and I think it was, it was off. And we can kind of go into some of those details, but before we go well, into that, I, mean, I want wanted... the capital. He he's the capital chief of police, right? He right. should have been in any formal and legitimate 
planning process. But see, this is what we've always been saying, and it's what I've been saying for a very long time. This was not a formal, legitimate process, right? This was a compartmentalized and, and more than covert. This, right, because covert operations, uh, you do not deny that there was U.S. involvement, right? A clandestine operation, you do, right? There's no, no, so no real quick, I got to make sure we're accurate on the terminology. Overt means that an operation took place and you know who did it. Clandestine is that an operation took place and no one knows that it happened, okay? A covert action is an operation that people know that it happened, but there's no uh, acknowledgement that it was conducted by a U.S. government entity. Those are the that's the distinction between the three. The simplistic definition is covert is attributable, and clandestine is non-attributable. Right? I mean, if you get rolled up on a covert operation, they will say, "Yeah, they were U.S. advisors. We're sorry." If you get rolled up on a clandestine, no, 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 you got, it's it's the other way uh, around. Too bad, so sad. The no. other way around. No. <laughs> okay, so I, I mean, I'm look, not going. I'm not going to belabor I'm, that. I'm not going to argue it because it's okay. a minor. <laughs> Without explaining why, I know for sure. Let's just leave it at that. You, we can look it up later, unless you want. You want to pull it up, Jen? You can go ahead and do it. We can hash it out now. Okay, so what what else are you trying to say, um, Ivan? I think you're saying you're trying to say something there. Yeah. So. It, January 6th. So as in the lead up to January 6th, as I explained that and I publicly stated that that should be the path forward on January 6th, uh, where Mike Pence would gavel in and, and acquiesce to what Kevin McCarthy would do, well, that would have meant that all six states at, at a minimum, maybe Pennsylvania, Arizona and Wisconsin would have been objected to. No one would have gotten 270. And then there would have been an overall contingent election, thus reelecting Trump, right? That was the path. But what happened instead was when I was asked by praying medic, what do you think this is going to be wild thing is? And I said, well, if Nancy Pelosi, the only thing that Nancy Pelosi can do to stop Kevin McCarthy and Mike Pence from doing this recommended uh, one state, one vote objection vote, and then causing the Trump reelection is to call on her sergeant at arms to kick out the Senate and to stop that style of voting from taking place. Now, it didn't happen exactly like that, but it almost did. So then if you're Pelosi and you're her chief of staff, Terry McCullough, and you're her Paul, the sergeant at arms, Paul Irving, and Jamie Fleet, one of the senior advisors to Nancy Pelosi, and you're best friends with the assistant capital police chief, not best friends, but you're you're close with the assistant capital police chief, Yogananda Pittman, who heads up the Intel and Interagency Coordination Division. Again, I'll say I'll stop my foot. Intelligence and Interagency Coordination Division, Yogananda Pittman. Then you already have the people in place along with your daughter who's with you that day coordinating from the inside, doing her quote documentary. And then her husband, her, her son-in-law, Nancy's son-in-law, Michael Voss, is on the outside coordinating 
and observing and providing info back to his wife on the inside, who then gives it to Nancy Pelosi, right, and others. So you have Nancy Pelosi, her family on the Capitol grounds that we need to account for, the Capitol Police Board, and then you have literally the number two or arguably the number three person at U.S. Capitol Police that is in on an op, the covert action op. And what does that covert action op look like? Well, it looks like an intentional, facilitated, instigated breach of the Capitol to, tr to turn the country from seeing and hearing the objections of an illegally conducted and illegally certified election. And instead, they, they showed the world that look at what we have here, an insurrection. What indicators do we have to showcase that that is a, the most plausible hypothesis? One. Mayor Bowser, also in on it, I argue, sends out on January 5th a tweet telling the executive branch of the federal government that no assets will be deployed in D.C. and thus the capital area without the direct request of Bowser, meaning DHS, DOJ, DOD National Guard, right? Because the D.C. National Guard falls under the Secretary of the Army, the Secretary of the Army under the Secretary of Defense. Notice I didn't say Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Millie. We'll get to that a little later. So she rejects any external support for January 6th. Meanwhile, Yogananda Pittman sits on intelligence that would give Chief Stephen Sund the ability to then get the necessary, uh, he would have the leverage with an intel report, what is it, 21 TD 159, to then say, hey, Capitol Police Board, I need additional external support. And the only way that Chief Sun can get approval for that is through the Capitol Police Board with the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader inviting and requesting the other branch of government, the executive branch, to allow them to go onto the Capitol grounds. Absent that request by Speaker Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, the executive branch is not allowed to go onto the Capitol grounds. Now, what if you ask, what if Pelosi and McConnell said, hey, Pittman, go ahead and allow certain individuals within certain entities like, oh, I don't know, FBI undercovers? DHS, CBP, HSI undercovers, Department of Interior Park Police undercovers, DC Metro undercovers. Yogananda Pittman, why don't you go ahead and coordinate that for us in your role as interagency coordination chief. And while you're at it, why don't you coordinate something down at the DNC and the RNC, which fall into the U.S. Capitol Police extended jurisdiction zone by having someone with the face toilet on and placing some inert devices that look like something of a threat over at DNC and RNC the night prior. So then it would have been the Intel and Interagency Coordination Division person, right? Pittman and then her deputy, Julie Farnham, that should know what's going on there. And who else? I mean, they're, they're coordinating the interagency, so they must know who those individuals are. I mean, what? I mean, think about it. 
if you are in control of a particular jurisdiction, you probably want to know who's coming in and out. And the person that's going to be responsible of knowing who it is, it's the person with the title of Intel and Interagency Coordination Division Chief, right? Uh, the Assistant Capital Police Chief for that particular side of things. So my argument is that because Nancy Pelosi and the those folks there did not want Trump to be reelected, and this was an option for a, a constitutional maneuver for a one state, one vote to kind of cause that, coupled with the entire DOJ wanting to get Trump out of office because of their illegal activities, starting with the spying on Carter Page in 2016 and all the cover up since then, that it was an existential threat to the corrupt governmental actors within. FBI, certain members of DHS, right, etc., to be able to cover that up. And then you add on top of that, who created the DHS? You have one minute left. It was Bush and Cheney. And then if you look at Mike Pence and ask him who your favorite vice president is and was, he says it was Cheney. And so I would suspect that Mike Pence, having served on the home on the Judiciary Committee back in 2001 to 2013, who created the Homeland Security Department, probably has people on the inside and in senior positions that he trusts to be able to tap into. And we'll, we'll cover the rest of it on the other side. Well, of course. I mean, they're all thick as thieves, these guys. <laughs> the caller has it's hung so up. It's so sad, but it's funny and it's sad. With with all this being said, I'm just I mean the web of lies, uh, and deceit, and corruption, and yes. some baggery as they call it on the street. Yes, in the How vernacular. Are... So I'm I'm now looking forward to hearing your suggestions for uh for dealing with this. But I'll wait I'll wait my turn. I gotta lay out every <laughs> single person first. Yeah. Who are all the scum, and how do we create the necessary leverage to? Uh, crush the commies and castrate the deep state. Yeah. And I and I, I picked up what you said earlier, even if we don't win next year. I heard that. So <laughs> Yeah, we're we're coming for him. And Dan Bishop, Congressman Dan Bishop. Are you able to play clips? Yeah. <laughs> no so, uh, Congressman Dan Bishop. It's probably in my Twitter somewhere. It's like, we're putting the deep state on notice. We're coming for you, he says. Okay. I thank the yeah. chairman. Mr. Speaker, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, we that trust one. our Department of Justice, FBI, and intelligence community with great power to keep us safe. And yet, as long as these agencies have existed, they violated mm -hmm. Americans' civil rights, yeah, everyday Americans. The security state Check believes one, two, to be above one, the Constitution yeah. and the laws gotcha. passed by Congress. We're just or playing perhaps a clip the belief is only tacit. It is aware only of power, not authority, power. The FBI spied on Frank Sinatra, John Lennon, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Muhammad Ali because they were national security threats, celebrities but everyday Americans as to their constitutional rights. 
The intelligence community abused power to spy on presidential candidates, a sitting president, and members of Congress and their staffs. The FBI continuously coordinated with social media companies to moderate social content, the public square. So contemptuous are they and out of touch when confronted with this just weeks ago, they said we were merely engaged in engaging with our community partners. Leading up to the 2020 election, the FBI worked hand in hand with Twitter and Facebook to silence the Hunter Biden laptop story. Concealment from everyday Americans. They've continued to censor and silence criticism of COVID policies and vaccine mandates to the harm of everyday Americans. In 2013, the former director of the National Intelligence James Clapper lied to Congress about the NSA collecting data on millions of Americans, yet he's escaped a reckoning. The NSA spied on groups including Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International and other NGOs. FBI contractors conducted thousands of searches on NSA databases. The intelligence community spied on journalists and political opponents in clear violation of the First Amendment. That's not all just illegal, it's un-American, and it cannot continue. The government's massive surveillance apparatus is well documented, but there's still much more that we do not know. We owe it to the American people to reveal the rot within our federal government and cut it out so that it can no longer harm everyday Americans. Mr. Speaker, today we're putting the deep state on notice. We're coming for you on behalf of everyday Americans. I yield back. Ooh, I got the chills. I thank the chairman. Mr. Speaker. Yep. <laughs> that right there, folks. Uh, yes. I'm glad he said that. Okay. So I was in his office, like, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes before he went on the House floor saying that. So God works in yeah. mysterious ways. What do you think of that, Jeremy? Well, I thought it sounded great, but uh, was that before or after they gave the FBI the brand new headquarters in Maryland and then fully funded their entire budget there and the DOJ? So this is exactly what pisses me off, right? Is that they all now, thanks to the work of you know Ivan and Tim Rivers and so many other patriots out there, the Laura Logans, the Alex Jones is the Orange Warriors, everybody, the Jeremy Browns, the Jens, yeah. right? Yeah. They're all now scared to death, right? Which I just I just did a, a an address of, of a group the other day, and I actually read my statement that I gave to Judge Bucklew at my sentencing. They all know now that January 6th is not going to go away, that the January 6th movement is growing every day, and with the release of information that isn't being given up by Congress and isn't being given up by the DOJ, but actually being discovered by intrepid journalists, intrepid citizens, now they all of a sudden want to say nice, fancy words. But again, politicians have always given us nice, fancy words. Their actions do not support their words because like i just said they just passed yeah you know, all the money the doj and the fbi wanted they got they get their brand new shiny new headquarters in Maryland. 
what they're going to get here in the next few months is a re-upping of Section 702 of the Foreign Surveillance Act, right? They're all going to vote for it. And they'll allow a certain number of them that are in districts where people are really raising hell about the rogue FBI. They'll allow them to vote against it. But it's going to pass. Even though we know through Wall Street Journal reports, Epoch Times, any basic, even crap news organization out there has reported on the FBI violating the Fourth Amendment, utilizing FISA, utilizing their unholy alliance with the NSA and the CIA, admitted to by the FBI director. Oh, yeah, we violated it two million times, but don't worry, last year we only violated it 350,000 times, right? Despite all of this public outrage at the FBI to the, to the fact where literally they're one of the most embarrassing organizations to work in the government. It doesn't matter. Congress is still going right along. Why? Because Congress is fraudulent. I mean, Congress knows what is going on. They say what they have to say in order to get us off their back, but they're not going to do anything about it. And and this is what people need to continue to raise hell about. Because you're right, that was a lovely speech. I will give it my customary golf class. <laughs> hey, he was one of the ones that voted against the FBI headquarters. That was Dan Bishop. Who uh, was seven Republicans? That? that was Dan Bishop. Congressman from North Carolina. Okay. He's on the Weaponization Committee. Well, I'm and sure Judiciary Mr. and Bishop, Oversight. I'm sure Mr. Bishop has heard about my case, and I haven't been contacted by Mr. Bishop. What I think. I'm and not sure I he knows about your case. Oh, uh, I bet he does, because I know others that do know. And I'm sure they know him. But my point is this. Well, let me text him. I'm going to let him know about your case. Yeah. And tell him that I'm sure we can get him a spot at the Citrus County Resorts for Democracy visitation booth (laughs) anytime the Honorable Congressman would like. In fact, he can even reach out to Laura Logan. She easily got two and a half hours to sit down with me face to face uh, with cameras and everything. So my point is this. The Capitol Police did not obtain two M67 fragmentation grenades and a classified CD-ROM from 7th Special Forces Group that happened to coincide with the exact same time Jeremy Brown was in Afghanistan. It wasn't the Capitol Police that came up with those three items that somehow found their way into my RV without any forensic evidence tying them to me other than Jeremy was in the army and Jeremy was in seventh group and Jeremy went to Afghanistan, right? That wasn't the Capitol police that did that. And so this is a much larger conspiracy and a much more dangerous conspiracy. And that's my focus. And I I appreciate everything you're saying, Ivan, and you're absolutely right. All, what you're describing is an aspect of the larger compartmentalized operation. Because the the extent of the confidential human source infiltration into three groups, 
that all just happened to be patsies for January 6th started years before January 6th. That's not by accident. In fact, I would be willing to wager that the planning for January 6th coincided directly with the planning of the fraudulent election itself. It had to have. Otherwise, how would there be so many confidential informants already inside of the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys when they have yet to ever be prosecuted as or even labeled as a domestic terrorism group? How did the FBI gain justification and authority to infiltrate those groups with confidential human sources as early as early 2020? They had to be before 2020 because there were at least two confidential human sources in the meeting that I held with the Oath Keepers in November of 2020. And the spotting, assessing, recruiting, training, operational uh, chain of events takes way more time than just a couple of weeks. And so this is my point to the American people and to my listeners is there's something going on here and the members of Congress got a lot of explaining to do and definitely the all the players that you've discussed involved in the Capitol Police infrastructure and they were all part of it. They all did they 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 did their useful idiot task appropriately. But there were much larger organizations, agencies, and players involved. And that's ultimately what I want to get to the bottom of. All right. right. I I agree with everything that you're saying. But my point here is, Jeremy, that everybody that was criminalized, weaponized against for having been in the vicinity of the Capitol was a direct result based on discretionary prosecutorial uh, discretion, if you will, by that Capitol Police Board and their leadership. So if somebody walked into the Capitol, uh, here's kind of how they did it. So you have the IICD, which was when Yogananda Pittman became the Capitol Police, acting Capitol Police Chief, they be, remember when they created a capability within U.S. Capitol Police to go ahead and scrub everybody's social media and then target them, right? Well, what they did was create this database to determine based on publicly available information, match it with their own CCTV footage to then determine who they're going to go after first based on your public statements on social media and your proximity, uh, the Venn diagram of that with the proximity to Trump so that they can go after anybody and everybody in that ecosystem. And they compiled that evidence, grabbed CCTV footage that was only inculpatory, kept all the exculpatory evidence out as much as possible, coerced Capitol Police officers into making impact statements that were fraudulent lies, etc., so that they could keep their jobs. That evidence in the in the collective, meaning the impact statements, the CTDV footage that was manipulated, was then sent over with the criminal referral document by who? The general counsel Thomas DeBias, signed off by Yogananda Pittman from January to July of 21. And then later signed off by the Thomas Manger, the subsequent Capitol Police chief, over to the U.S. Attorney's Office 
with FBI to then prosecute you and everyone else. Okay. It all started with the Capitol Police. And then add on top of that, the layer of bias and TDS and whatever you want to call it over the, the DOJ, U.S. Attorney Office and FBI. But I'm telling you that everything started with the Capitol Police. They had the discretionary power to not even prosecute you. And guess who they did that to? They did that to Ray Epps. They did that to whom else? Some of the other folks that you probably are aware of that were initially on the FBI's most wanted list. But when the FBI contacted the law enforcement entity of the Capitol, what did they say? Oh, the general counsel, Tad Tobias, and the chief of police, whether it was Pittman or Banger, said, no, 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 no. We already addressed that because Lizzie Cheney and Benny Thompson and Adam Kinzinger told us that Ray Epps is good to go because he was the one that facilitated the instigated, incited breach to be the outer breach team leader before he handed it over to the feds that were uh, near the building, facilitated and coordinated with John Sullivan because Yogananda Pittman was the one that coordinated that stuff. That's what I'm arguing. And so if we can basically use the doctrine of fruits of a poisonous tree as it applies to every J6 defendant, we can prove to the American public and the court of public opinion so that the court of public opinion, meaning the jury pool, demands that there be justice from their sheriffs, from from all of the institutions that are currently at play so that we can start to unravel these political persecutions to include yours. Yeah, I mean, I believe that every aspect of this onion needs to be filled back. And I'm, and I'm glad that you're focused on the capital uh, infrastructure, the law enforcement infrastructure, and the, the police board and all that, because that needs to be uncovered as well. What The aspect that I'm involved in is much many layers outside of just what happened on the Capitol grounds, uh, and it happens to be what my experience base lies in. So uh, let me call back. Goodbye. Evan, I have a question for you. Yeah, yeah. Manistee's in the chat asking, what all needs to be done to abolish the Patriot Act? Would the motion to abolish need to be made by a member of Congress and or Senate? Patriot Act was uh, co-sponsored, co-written by Mike Pence in 2002, I think it was, 2001, 2002, by the Judiciary Committee. Uh, So it would have to be basically the Patriot Act. It's either the Judiciary Committee, so Jim Jordan, or Homeland Security Committee, Mark Green chairs that, and essentially get that proposed to them to start working it through the House. I mean, now that we have a new speaker of the house, like we're in a totally different ball game right now, as as we've seen. A, a lot of people were skeptical of Mike Johnson. I mean, I know him. Uh, I like what he's done so far. Do we ignore not holding him to account? No, we continue to apply necessary pressure for him to continue to hear the demand signal from us. And so far, compared to my experience with McCarthy and his office, Mike Johnson is moving a thousand times faster than Kevin McCarthy and he doesn't have the stink that McCarthy does and so that's why we're seeing this but uh short answer to your question to sum up it's got to come from I mean Congress passed the law so Congress is going to have to repeal it 
Okay. I'm getting you. Me? Yes. Thank you. Okay. Can everybody hear me? Yes. Yeah. I got you. All right. So I, I don't know if you're in the, if you're in the middle of a, a, a point, uh, I'll go ahead and wrap, uh, finish that point because I, I want to make a point because uh, <laughs> I think, I think this is awesome, right? Because this is exactly what happens when you get two green berets, uh, uh, you know, mashing their brains together over a problem because this is exactly what we do in our in our planning cycle it's nothing but a bunch of super smart and motivated guys all trying to solve the grander problem right you know uh, intel targeting meetings uh, operational planning sessions you know, isolation planning course of action development this is what you have in health. Sometimes you might end up with a damn fist fight out of the matter, right? The, <laughs> I, I many exactly. Them, right? Not, not saying that that's going to happen, but Ivan, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You're yeah, and then when we're done and exhausted from beating death. each other up, then we're like, all right, what's next? Let's work on the next problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's go grab a beer, right? And so uh, I'm – what I would love for a hundred more Ivan Raiklins and Jeremy Brown uh, and Jeff M- M- McKellis, which is apparently another Green Beret that's locked away in some uh, prison as a result of actions at January 6th. Who would totally yeah, I, I, I ended up, I visited him uh, when it was a few months ago when they just opened up. So no, I guess the point that I was trying to make right. is that a lot of people focus in on you're focusing in on an area that I don't know about, but because you're reporting on it and you publicly disclose it, I'm aware of it because I consumed all that, right? All the different uh, court cases, etc. cetera. Uh, there's a lot of attorneys that are focused in the, in the judiciary. All I'm saying is that the first layer of this onion, as you call it, and I agree with that analogy, the first layer is the Capitol police board leadership. So it's political. Then it goes over for that secondary level of bias and persecution over at the DOJ. And then it's sent over to the courts where they've already been exposed to two plus years of politically biased, censored, coerced, manipulated public opinion content by the J6 Select Committee, which only gives one side of the argument. And most of it's already it consists of lies. And so by the time it gets to the jury or the judge to make a decision on whether or not you're guilty or innocent, it's already preordained because those three layers force them into that decision. And so I'm trying to get to the root. I'm saying that the root of the onion is the House Speaker and the Senate Majority Leader. And the the problem is that Congress doesn't even know that that's the case. These people like Troy Nels and uh, what is it? Clay Higgins and Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, whoever else uh, that's focused, like Thomas Massey's focused in on the pipe bomb stuff. None of those people understand the Capitol Police Board structure and how the Capitol Police is weaponized to on the J6 defendants because they never really looked into that. And then number two, the, like, the only people that would know that would be the individuals that I listed because they're the ones that run the op and it's there's no transparency in the process. You can't FOIA anything. So not only is society blind to their insider baseball, members of Congress that are that include the chairs of committees have no clue about it. The only we had to help step through Congressman Loudermilk and his staff that this is how the legal structure looks like. Luckily, uh, you know, they're working the problem now. 
That's all I'm saying. Well, I'm glad I'm glad that they finally got around to it. I mean, we're only almost to three years. Uh, I mean, if anyone wants to jump I love your positive time, sarcasm, Jeremy. I love it. No, <laughs> Any other normal look, human being would just be like cell. totally pissed. <laughs> look, I've been de- I've been in a jail cell for 782 days, screaming at these assholes to just come listen to me. I screamed so loud that. Apparently, we're all right. over. who's your congressman? Apparently, all these other voices are. Uh, apparently, Gus Bilarakis heard me. He came to visit me. And when he asked me, What do you want me to do? My response was, Talk to your colleagues that are looking into this. That was over a year ago, Ivan. The, the uh, constituent affairs guy for uh, Congressman Scott Franklin, who is an RBCID investigator with a focus in the special operations community came and gave me about an hour. And I frantically flipped through as many of my discovery documents as possible to show him that I was set up as a result of my screaming at the top of my lungs about the prior recruitment of me to be involved in Something in January at the Department of Homeland Security investigators working for the Joint Terrorism Task Force said in the recorded interview, and that guy, cricket. I, you know, my hope was that this guy who understands Army investigations would understand how two M67 fragmentation grenades, which have no tracking nexus, and DNA evidence of two other males that came out of the special project office of the Bluegrass Army Depot, how did they get in my RV, right? I would think that he would take that to Scott Franklin and say, Congressman, I think you should probably talk to this gentleman or at least talk to Higgins. Jeremy, who's your member? Who's the Congress member that represents you? Where do you vote? Like, Who's your member of Congress? Oh, Kathy Castor is my, Kathy Castor is my lovely representative. We know that the system doesn't work that way. That's why they gerrymander. So, uh, so, I mean, we've reached out to multiple congressmen, right? I mean, look, I've got, I've got a network of people here that have been busting their ass to try to get in, this stuff in front. Of, I mean, look, I've literally had Attorney General Ashley Moody receive confidential private attorney-client communications between us and her, and the very next day she turned it over to the FBI. I mean, this is the battle that we're fighting. We are fighting a battle of these establishment scumbags who are deathly afraid that they're involved at the very best. They're deathly afraid that they're involved in something that they don't understand, and they're hoping we all forget about it. But I'm here to tell you right now, if you think I'm upset this, oh, no, I passed that a long, long time ago, right? Yeah. Life hack. Don't piss off a Green Beret. Okay? And definitely don't lock him in a jail cell for two years to cover up your crimes. Because I will expose all of this, right? And and like I said, I'm you're 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 dead on right. The the capital sphere of this operation definitely had all of those dirty ass scumbags as players. Right. See, 
Uh, Matthew Graves, was it Matthew Graves who went on 60 Minutes and boasted about actually being there on January 6th? The U.S. attorney, part of the Department of Justice, the executive branch. Yeah, right? he was over, he he was over by the, uh, the uh, monument, Washington Monument. He was there that day. Huh. So the U.S. attorney in charge of all this just happens to take interest in a Trump rally. So much so that he goes and stands by and just watches the whole thing. Right? See, this was a setup much larger than the Capitol that started many months, if not years, prior to the election of 2020. Just like I'm sure that Hitler got all of his buddies together well before they burned the Reichstag to the ground. And then only later they uh, shot or whatever ended up happening to the poor Dutch communists that they pinned it all on. This is exactly what is going on. It is a false flag. The Capitol Police are definitely involved, right? At least the individuals, Pittman and all the other you know, useful idiots that have been manipulated and did, did their, their duty. But there's other larger players involved as well. And, and so you're right. I do have a much larger uh, umbrella you know, and trying to fuse all these things, if you will, on the fusion cell, try to put everything together and create a common operating picture that people could say, oh, my gosh, we are under attack. This is a military attack against the United States of America. And January 6th was simply a battle in that attack, right? And COVID yep. was a battle. And transgender nonsense is a battle, right? This is an all-out, unrestricted, unconventional, yep. uh, active measures attack against the United States. And that's the kind of the big picture that we always try to tie in. And so I certainly do appreciate you coming and pointing to these finer nuance points of the aspects uh, that uh, it directly involves the U.S. Capitol. Yeah, so you mentioned active measures, uh, ideological subversion, Yuri Bezmanov. Basically, my argument is that Yuri Bezmanov, whoever took his place over at the KGB and then later the FSB, probably did the whole train advise and assist with the Chinese Ministry of State Security, got them up to speed on how that worked back in the day in the 60s, 70s and 80s between the Soviet Union against their number one target, the United States, advised them to the point of, hey, this is what you can do. And you can even amplify that further by leveraging your economic might as well as your 5G, big data, AI, and uh, social media reach to then start to destroy from within using the ideological subversion methodologies in the West, particularly the U.S., as it applies to promoting self-mutilation, right? Promoting the murder of kids yeah, I'm, look, in the womb after imagine they're born. Mutilate them. Imagine Imagine how successful the Chinese would be if they only had people inside of our federal government. I mean, if they Wait. just had one or two assets, if, if they had just yeah, all they need to have millions is, is, of dollars. Imagine on, if they had the Chinese Communist Party's uh, ambassador to the U.S., who is a du who's dual hatted oh, as the Big Pharma ambassador, brand ambassador, Brandon and, ambassador. And it drives me crazy that people just don't see 
the 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 warfare aspect of all this, and uh, and so yeah, no, I mean, I I I, well, I don't I, know, Bre- you, you can't I, see I, what I'm wearing right now, Jeremy, but I have a hat on. It's the new uh, camo hat, and then it's got the little uh, Velcro patch on it, and it says "Plandemic Reprimando," and underneath it has the Punisher <laughs> face, and underneath the Punisher it says "COVID nineteen reprimanded ranks." Oh my gosh! For a second there, I thought you were going to tell me you were wearing a tinsel hat. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> That would have been the worst, right? Now, I, was, I was a 20th and 19th group guy, so I was I was a half-timer. Uh, oh, I, thought, I don't know why I thought you were a 10th group, but uh, let me go back and, and, and clear up our earlier uh, you know, uh, discussion about clandestine and covert, because I really like to try to make sure that everybody understands this. And like, like many arguments between two SF guys, it turns out that we're both right. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> I'm, gonna read, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna read to you the actual <laughs> definition uh, from Joint Pub three dash five dot one and three dash five in general, which is the unconventional warfare uh, joint pub. So, clandestine operation is an operation sponsored or conducted by governmental departments or agencies in such a way to ensure secrecy or concealment. A clandestine operation differs from a covert operation in that emphasis is placed on concealment of the operation rather than on concealment of the identity of the sponsor. In special operations, an activity may be both covert and clandestine and may focus equally on operational considerations and intelligence-related activities, whereas the definition of covert operation is an operation that is so planned and executed as to conceal the identity or permit plausible denial of the sponsor. And so the key is that clandestine emphasizes on denying the operation in general. And so that's really the nuanced difference that I because I'm referring to January 6th as an operation and it's clandestine in nature because they're denying altogether that it was an operation, which is which would fall under clandestine. Covert, you don't deny the operation. You want plausible deniability that you're responsible for the operation. And so that's kind of the, you know, so I read you the book definition, the employment, the, the way we employ these terms, and that's why it de- delineates between Thank you for using Goodbye. <laughs> an argument with him on this podcast. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> so you be the judge of who uh, was right. I'm, mm-mm, no, sir. They. It sounds like you guys are both right. So <laughs> I'm going to have to rebut that one. <laughs> <laughs> he had to adjust it in order to be accurate <laughs> when he just read it out. <laughs> I put what um I put what I found online from the actual um sgp.fas.org. I put it into the the chat so people would read it while got you guys it. were talking. But anyway, um yeah, so we, we yeah we never got to you can you can yeah you can be both clandestine and covert but when you delineate down to its basics it's overt means you know that an operation took place and 
there's no concealment of the sponsor of that action, like the government, right? Clandestine is that you want to do a clandestine operation so that no one knows it even happened. So then it doesn't really get to the point of whether or not a government sponsored it or a U.S. government sponsored it. And then covert, you know that the operation took place, but you don't know who the actual sponsor or act, uh, the person behind it conducted it. Now, I want to I want to drill this down a little bit more when he gets back on oh, the boy. part where he says it's both. I'm sure he's excited. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool to see both of you putting your both of your brains together um, and seeing the back and forth. I know a lot of people iron that are sharpens iron. Would you say iron sharpens iron? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, what do you see as your long term plan? for like you're going to stay in dc and, and just continue to hammer are you going to come with like a up with like a plan for people to get involved what's the the long-term outlook for you for me i'm just going to keep applying foot on neck uh, on the appropriate necks to create the necessary leverage to get them to um, act appropriately okay. that's really it i mean i'm, I'm retired so like I just want a, uh, an autocorrect to what just happened. I mean, I'm partially at fault in the sense that had I not made noises, we wouldn't have had a, uh, a Fed surrection, right? Nancy Pelosi wouldn't have done that in mm. essence. So I feel, responsible. Mm. I feel somewhat responsible to every single J6er uh, because Nancy Pelosi and the, uh, and the Capitol Police Board and, and the other actors had to resort to that had i kept quiet it probably would have been cleaner and he, no one would have trespassed mm. i don't know thank you for using just like what he says he thinks it was you know planned way in advance that i have to yeah we, have to, we hey i gotta debate you on two points jeremy get ready okay all right point number all right, here we one. go when we first talked, so you did concede to me uh, that the definition of clandestine is where the operation is not to be known, right? And then covert is where the sponsor or the the person behind the operation uh, is trying to avoid disclosure. Now, your argument is that the, right. the they don't even acknowledge the that the operation took place, but everybody knows that there was an operation. So then you can't call it clandestine. You say everybody. And I would say that only 65% of registered voters believe that there was an operation. <laughs> so yes, you and I <laughs> know that there was an operation. And, and, and it is the response of the sponsors, right? Right now, there is a 100% denial that there was election. Like they No, there, was, a, like, there no. was an operation in the sense that one side is trying to keep it covert, meaning they're trying to make it so that people think that the operation was a one conducted by seditious co-conspirators, right? Uh, proud boys and oath keepers and, and whoever else they want to politically target. So they're trying to make it so that it looks like the operation was done by the ones that didn't do it. That's the covert aspect. Yeah, of it. I mean, that's it. Well, I mean, yeah, they're claiming that the Oath Keepers 
that the Oath Keepers were involved in a covert action, right? What I'm saying is that the government operation is clandestine in nature. And see, this is why it's a, in special operations, both of these terms are used uh, for many activities because not only do we deny the operation, but we also deny the sponsorship. I can't mean this is the aspect. So, so you, you're, I, I was, I'm speaking in much more uh, from the employment aspect. When we employ a clandestine operation, we're denying everything. It's lie, deny, and make counter accusations, right? A covert operation, right? There, there's that, yeah, that lawyer talk, and you should be familiar with that, right? Well, I mean, we can have elements in the area, but we're working as advisors, right? Because everyone knows that the operation is going on. It's but what is the nature of it, right? That's like that's like the covert, right? I'll I'll use this as an example. So remember the the bombing, whatever you want to call it, taking out the Natanz Iran nuclear power plant. Yeah, I think we remember. It was a that. cyber attack. And then there was the plausible deniability that the, that America and Iran or excuse me, and Israel were not behind it. They're trying to protect the sponsor of the actual event. And I'm not confirming or denying whether or not the United States or Israel was involved, but let's make the assumption that they were. If they were basically saying, "No, we didn't do it." We, everyone knows that the attack occurred, the cyber attack to render that nuclear facility uh, ineffective. So that's that's the covert part of it. Had no one even known that it happened, then it would have been clandestine. Anyway, right. I guess See, I'm not going to concede. You're... <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to. I said we were both right. <laughs> All right, part number two. This is where. Okay, how about this? I'm not conceding. Well, I want to get some clarity on the down. What's that? No, the second point is more important. That that was kind of a tangent that didn't really matter much in the grand scheme of things. The second comp component is key. I want to figure out where where do you think they started the planning for January sixth and why? Because I'm I'm of the opinion that. January 6th, specifically as it applies to January 6th, is a, a is a outgrowth of the conversation that was taking place in late December and early January. And the planning for it specifically was done then. Uh, but I will say that, yes, there was recruitment going on within these organizations, whatever, Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, etc., because historically the FBI, since its inception, has always tried to infiltrate different groups that start to build political momentum that could challenge the existing order of the established uh, political elites, both left and right. So I'm trying to figure out where exactly based on what you know, way better than I do, as it applies to that side of it and what I probably know better in terms of the political interactions uh, at the highest levels going into January 6th. So I mean, what are your thoughts? No, I mean, listen, let's look at this in terms of like op plans, right? So everyone always likes to make a big deal about the fact that we have operational plans to invade every country on the planet. Okay, no big deal. But see, these right. are ongoing plans that are constantly being developed. And there are working groups in every aspect of this plan. 
you know, I know for a fact, right? Because this is the this is what you these these are the things that happen at the strategic command level, the theater command level, which is where uh, you know, which is what SOCCENT is. SOCCENT was the Special Operations Command Central, the theater Special Operations Command, right? And so these are the types of things. So there's always ongoing development of op plans, and then it trickles down as you get closer to actually operational or your invasion or whatever happens, right? So broad-based, I think there's always been this standing plan since at least, you know, post 9-11 and while, so you need the new Department of Homeland Security and the 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 internal uh, surveillance state that was created as an outcropping of 9-11, right? I mean, you look back at PNAC, they're like, hey, in order for us to gain all these uh, neat new toys and everything, we need to have a new Pearl Harbor, right? I mean, the desire has always been by the tyrant to find a way to justify criminalizing of their enemies, right? So broad picture, I think they've just been waiting for the perfect opportunity. Now, to January 6th, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, let's look at uh, when they started to actually say we have to take down the Donald Trump presidency, right? I mean, we're talking about the use of intel- foreign intelligence. Uh, yeah, so I, I've stepped it back to 20, it all starts in 2016. It all starts when. Or even, I mean, look. He, won, he secured the nomination is when it started. Because in 2016, that's when they foisted well, good old I, Mikey Pence on him. Well, how about this? How about when did the demonization of so-called militia groups, which is an improper use of the terminology, right? When did that happen, Will? I mean, you saw major so-called militia-type operations throughout the Clinton administration, then through the Bush administration, then through the Obama administration. In fact, the Obama administration, DHS, who started to, to lay the groundwork and the predictive programming, if you will, that veterans returning from the combat zones are a danger to homeland security, right? So Yeah, they're saying that now yeah, because I mean, guess what? We have the capability to identify when they're conducting criminal corrupt activity, and we have the Second Amendment implements to potentially, exactly. if necessary, uh, enforce the Constitution. That's exactly right. And see, unlike every judge that has also sworn a similar oath to mine, I've actually put my life on the line for it. So I'd be willing to bet, I would wager against any judge in this country that I actually care more about my oath than they do, right? But I mean, that, that's, but you're right. I mean, this is all a very long protracted plan. And so as we hone down, right, onto, like we said, we take our op plan, and as we get closer to actual invasion, plans get more specific. We start to actually task organized units and things like that. So I think the concept of creating this environment of domestic violent extremists and domestic terrorism has been a long time in the making, right? In fact, it goes back to 2010. Was it uh, not long ago when you looked up a Department of Homeland Security quote identifying veterans as a threat back all the way back to 2009, right? It was uh, the hundred and let's see, 114th Congress that wrote 
the JP3-05 definition, 114th Congress, uh, as part of the National Authorization Act of 2016. Obama, out the door, signed into public law the, the definition of unconventional warfare. Well, why would that be necessary? I mean, unconventional warfare definition has been around as long as unconventional warfare has been around. But see, I think that this war against the American people, uh, specifically the American patriot, the person that actually knows that this isn't a democracy. So when you say that I'm a threat to our democracy, well, you're absolutely right. In fact, I just wrote uh, uh, an entry letter to Jim Hoff for the Gateway Pundit, and I said, they're right. I am a threat to their democracy because their democracy is diametrically opposed to the U.S. Constitution of which I swore an oath to. And you can find what type of government we actually are constitutionally given in Article 4, Section 4, where it states that the United States government guarantees that the state shall enjoy or shall be given a Republican form of government, not the Republican Party. Otherwise, it'd be a government of just losers who wake up every single day and give up, right? But Republican form of government, meaning that this is a republic based on small districts where we elect representatives who then go and pass legislation and laws and all this other stuff, right? But see, they rely on our own ignorance in order to manipulate us with their Orwellian language of our democracy. You can take your democracy, you can take your democracy and, uh, you know, shove it where all the 44,000 hours of tape have been hiding for the last uh, three years. <laughs> all right. We'll leave it at that. So let me explain. So January 6th, we talked about, we know it was a facilitated, uh, instigated incited breach into the Capitol because Muriel Bowser blocked the uh, any executive branch support. Meanwhile, the uh, sergeants at arms, the Yogananda Pittmans of the world helped, you know, make sure that there was insiders, instigators in there. We, you know, we have the outer breach team by Ray Epps and there's others that haven't been identified yet. The inner breach team, uh, John Sullivan was always up front. And then we've already identified DC Metro undercovers, uh, we're still trying to identify the names of the particular other feds that were there, right? My point here is that the breach component of it, and I guess Ray Epps' affiliation, I still think that Ray Epps was a direct uh, agent slash surrogate controlled by the Capitol Police Board or Nancy Pelosi, like specifically Pelosi, Pittmans of the world to conduct that op. So meaning the Article One branch of government, not the FBI. And that's how he was able to, if you make the, it could be a wrong assumption, but if you make the assumption that he testified uh, truthfully under oath, where he said, I orchestrated it, where he said, I did not work for law enforcement, then the only answer that can explain him being on the FBI's most wanted, then taken off, and then placed back on again, it was a political decision because he was pulled in probably by, let me say this, this is key, this is important. On January 5th in my investigations, a couple people reached out 
and told me that under they would be willing to come in under sworn testimony to explain that they witnessed John Sullivan meeting with Nancy Pelosi's son-in-law at the JW Marriott lobby. Okay. Now, January 5th at noon in the lobby. Later on that evening, you see John Sullivan is standing next to Ray Epps over at the BLM Plaza. You have one minute left. And so since we only have one minute left, I'm going to leave the cliffhanger to say that John Sullivan and Michael Voss, Pelosi's son-in-law, were directly involved in coordinating the breach the following day with Ray Epps. Oh, I don't doubt that at all. So, yeah, I'll go into more details. The caller has hung up. Very interesting. I had to write that down because you know there you had um, Steve Baker and Alicia Powell in John Sullivan's trial last week. And yeah, with- I was there at. Yeah, I'll get into that. I spoke okay. with John okay. Sullivan for three hours. Okay, because w- what I heard from it, just from social media, it looked like they were. I'm not going to use the word defending him, but I would say what came out in court, um, they had their opinions on what they based their opinions on what happened in the courtroom. I'll say that. And to me, it seems like not everything is, I mean, the the court is just, it's like a show trial. Not everything is allowed to even be talked about in there. So you can't. So I'm going to read the transcripts later. I didn't okay. participate in the trial. Uh, I want <laughs> I want Jeremy to hear this. Okay, I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> so yes, I'll say that again. I spoke with John Sullivan for three hours last week. Yeah. Has anybody that you know talked to no. him that long? No. Definitely not. Like I said, what those two journalists are saying was so this is this all this stuff in the collective informs me right and my background and knowledge of the system and how things work and going into deep dive the legal aspect the special operations background understanding that how tech uh, strategic like he says jeremy strategic operational plans how it would be tactically executed and then uh within the bounds of the discretionary authority that those individuals have and that's the whole title two of the u.s code uh, that allowed them to do what they did. And then when you look at the overlay on top of that, the, the relationships that everyone has, yeah, it becomes pretty clear. Uh, but again, it's not 100%, mm-hmm. but to get to 100%, we have to advise the appropriate members of the committees that have access to discretionary power to start to unravel things. Now and We're getting there. It's been said, uh, and apparently that was from his testimony, Ray Epps, was that he did not work for the FBI, but that doesn't mean that he could not have been working for DHS, correct? It's very possible he could be working for any one of these other agencies. No, the way they frame the question, and Laura Logan touched that upon in her second one. Mm-hmm. In the transcript, it says that he was, uh, I think, was I know. Like, you working for any government agency? And he said, no. Well, mm-hmm. you can still say that truthfully and say, well, the House Sergeant at Arms is not an agency. Or Nancy Pelosi is not an agency. Or even if he meant no governmental actor, he could have said, no, I was only working for, uh, what is it, John Sullivan. Or uh, what's his name? 
Michael Voss, who's uh, the son of yeah. Those aren't governmental actors. They're cutouts on behalf of Pelosi. All right, this is what you need to hear, Jeremy, because you're going to understand this, talking about cutouts and this and that. All right, so January 5th. To understand January 6th, you got to understand January 5th. So on January 5th, a couple of people reached out to me. I mean, it's like over 18 months ago on Telegram. They're like, hey, here's what I got. Here's my receipt. This is the hotel I'm at. This is blah, blah, blah. And they tell me that they had observed a meeting between John Sullivan and John Sullivan. You know who that is, right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael Voss. You know who Michael Voss is, right? Well, apparently he's uh, Nancy Pelosi's son-in-law. Yeah. So they're meeting on January 5th at noon. And then later, this is based on an account of an unvetted, well, I shouldn't say unvetted, but partially vetted source, uh, two of them, that provided me information of where they stayed, but unvetted in the sense of I haven't confirmed and corroborated with another to uh, that could prove that that statement was accurate, right? But I have no reasons to think that it's inaccurate. But having said that, it's uncorroborated that those two are meeting. But later on, we see video of John Sullivan standing with Ray Epps over at BLM Plaza as Ray Epps is saying tomorrow, recruiting folks to attack the Capitol the following day. Coincidence, right? Well, what's one way to fill an information gap and try to confirm? Well, let's talk to John Sullivan. Wait, I had an opportunity to talk to John Sullivan for three hours on Thursday before the verdict came out because. You know, like a good informed person I am, I guess, I accidentally bump into him at the cafeteria at the D.C. Federal District Court. Because where else does he have to go while he's waiting for his verdict? And I stumble across him and his mother. And I approach him and say, hey, John, why were you, what were you talking about when you were meeting with Michael Voss on January 5th at noon at the JW Marriott Hotel lobby, sir. And he's like, uh, who are you? My name's Ivan Raiklin. And what started off with that turned into a three-hour conversation, and he started to spill some goods. So here are some of the goods. I ask, so when I asked him that, he's like, well, I don't know who Michael Voss is, and I don't know who, uh, and I was not at the W Hotel. And he said it in a very compelling uh, confident tone and demeanor. I'm like, okay, well, you're saying that, but can you provide me something else that will support your what you're saying? And he starts to say confidently, oh yeah, I, I did a whole Google Maps trace uh, in preparation for my trial to defend myself. So he starts to pull up, you know, in, in Google Maps, you can pull up, and I actually pronounce it commie maps, but anyway, in commie maps, you have, uh, the ability to trace based on the device that you have, right, to be able to see what's going on. So it pings it every time there's different movements if you have that feature on. Well, apparently he had it on and he, he pulls up this information. And then one, one component, it's, it lists the locations based on you know location, time, and duration of being there, and then to the next one. So I'm like, all right, show me January 5th around noontime. What does the ping show us? And he pulls it up and he says, uh, it says at 10 a.m., about 10.05, it says that he is at DCA, so Reagan National Airport. And I asked him, well, when did you fly in? 
He said, well, I flew on on January 4th, but on January 5th, I had to go back because my luggage was lost and I had to pick up my luggage. So at 10 a.m. I'm like, okay, it sounds okay. And then he says, then it says on the, on the spreadsheet form that at two, it was like 2.36 or something around there, he's at the Hamilton Hotel. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, you accounted for 10 o'clock and 2.30 something, but that's four hours in between. It doesn't take four hours to go ahead and grab your luggage. So what else? We're missing some data. You still haven't disproven that you were not at the JW Marriott Hotel. And so he goes into the feature that lists what? the whole path and track. And lo and behold, it shows that he is at the JW Marriott Hotel. And I even wrote this down as we were talking. He's there from 1145 until 1236. Okay. 1145. That, that's commensurate with what my two sources told me of where they, they saw him there. So what's the next logical thing to do for Congressman Barry Loudermilk and his staff? Subpoena the J.W. Marriott Hotel. Yeah, the hotel and the cameras from that day and subpoena John Sullivan's phone, Selbright that bad boy, Selbright Michael Voss's uh, cell phones and devices, as well as the accounts that they use and are on, whether it's Sprint, Verizon, T-Mobile, or AT&T, bring all that in, get the cell phone ping data to kind of see what's going on, and then start from there. That would be my recommendation, of which I have recommended. Next, what other key things that he mentioned to me? He was at BLM Plaza from 9.56 p.m. to 11.13 p.m. So apparently that was the time when he was with, standing by, Ray Epps. What is that? 17 minutes? I don't know. A lot of things can happen in 17 minutes, particularly if you had been talking and communicating on several occasions prior to that. I don't know. Worth investigating, right? And then why don't we take the cell phone ping data for the following day, which he showed me of his path to the Capitol, the other side. So it's all there. Now, granted, it was in the in the courthouse. So I'm following the rules of the courthouse. Can't take pictures, can't do video. I get it. But that's where I, I talked to him and met with him. And what started off with being so compelling and convincing that he wasn't there at the hotel Turned out when I when I called him out on it, he's like, well, uh, you didn't say that originally that I was there at that moment. I'm like, bro, I know what I said. You want to try to manipulate me. It ain't going to work. So I got you on that next. Yeah. So I then, mean, what's that? Look, I mean, he I mean, he's a known liar. I mean, look, he he testified. <clears throat> he testified that the reason uh, he was acting like a Trump supporter uh, why he was in the Capitol because he was surrounded by white supremacists. And that, you know, his, he didn't want his black ass, his words, not mine. Uh, he didn't want his black ass to get beat up by a bunch of white supremacists. But see, the problem is, I have in my discovery, whether they meant to put it in there or not, I have 
Another video that nobody apparently has seen of John Sullivan. A second video. Everyone's seen the one of him in the rotunda and bragging uh, to the girl whose pants he was trying to get into, uh, Jade, whatever her name is, from CNN, right? Yeah, Jade Sacker. There's another video of them. Yeah, Jade Sacker actually walking. They're off Capitol grounds. They're walking down a nice, quiet street. And it's just John Sullivan on a phone talking to a third party saying the exact same bragging and pride and we did it and we did it while Jade is um, in high definition recording every word of it. There's not a single white supremacist or Trump supporter anywhere around him to make him so fearful that he has to intentionally lie to seem like a fellow white supremacist. But apparently the left thinks that black guys if they just say the right thing, uh, somehow turn off the hatred of a white supremacist. Clearly, they don't actually understand what a white supremacist is. But that's a side point. So he, the FBI has direct video of him. He should know that he, this video exists because it's being recorded by professional journalists, right? And yet he goes into a federal courtroom and tells a blatant lie without any fear. Right? So he, he claimed to me that he was... He was official press, and I I probed him some more. I said, "Okay, so you read you personally yeah. individually registered with the Senate Sergeant at Arms, which is the entity that uh, there's a there's a component within the Senate Sergeant at Arms that has the uh, ability to give out press credentials." And I'm like, "So you reached out to them and got approved as an independent journalist? That normally doesn't take place." You got to be a credential, like most of these mainstream media outlets, you have to make 50% of your, there's different components you have to go through for them to approve you. And I find that, I mean, I guess we can investigate whether that took place or not. I just didn't find it credible just off the cuff. The other thing that I found to be not credible is when every time I asked him about the politics of things, he's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know anything about politics. I just know like there's the president Trump and that's about it. Every time I would start going into the whole Capitol Police Board and whether he was communicating with Pelosi and Alexandra and or, and or Michael Voss, it just went completely blank, like a firewall came into play and said, I don't know anything about the politics of stuff. And he, he didn't really care about the verdict. He's like, ah, whatever, whatever verdict I get, I get. I mean, it's just he just sem- seemed aloof as though he's going to be taken care of. And that, that was my interpretation. I could be uh, wrong. I've been or, wrong a lot, but that was my interpretation. Yeah, look, I mean, you mentioned Ray Epps. Jen, uh, I just need to check in. Has uh, Ray Epps' attorney uh, contacted us, served us with any lawsuit paperwork yet? Not yet. <laughs> no, it's, hey, it, it's pronounced, <laughs> hey, Jeremy, I, I, sorry to break it to you, but it's pronounced Chris Ray Epps, and the W is silent. <laughs> oh yeah, and may, maybe maybe uh, he's a good whipping boy. But let me just re let me reiterate my uh, near one hundred percent claim that Reyes was certainly working for the United States government in some capacity on January sixth, so that if he if you would like to file a defamation suit against Jeremy Brown, um, I welcome it. Because I love discovery. It's the favorite, my favorite part of this entire rigged judicial system. 
And so, Jen, <laughs> um, just make sure that we, do we have a special line for Ray Epps in case he wants to call in. We need to have that. We sure do. I'll put it on the bottom. Fact, why don't this. we just combine? <laughs> why don't we just combine? One eight hundred. Make make it one eight 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 Ray Epps. Well, no, I mean, I, Ivan, you might not know this, but we have like a billion dollar reward for the first man that can come forward who's pregnant. Or, I mean, hell, I might even throw my hat in the ring. If anyone would like to attempt to uh, intimidate me and put a baby in my womb, uh, one billion dollar reward for anyone who comes forward and can do that. Um, so I can't we, we do it. I can't do that, but I, I can, I can actually do one better for you. Listen closely. Ray Epps, if you read through his transcript and he says, and we were doing this during the break when you had to call back in Ray Epps, uh, when he was testifying said, not only did he orchestrate it, but he also said that he wasn't working for a U.S. government agency. He can still be uh, making Hi. the assumption that he's truthful. You can still be truthful and say that and then still work for Nancy Pelosi's daughter or Nancy Pelosi's son-in-law or John Sullivan, because those three individuals aren't part of the uh, U.S. government agency. And also, you can argue that Nancy Pelosi is not part of a U.S. government agency. She's the Speaker of the House. Right. So there's still ways where he could have been truthful. Uh, And then considering that crybaby Kinzinger was protecting him and the New York slimes did a puff piece on him and uh 60 fraudulent seconds also did a puff piece on him right the entire uniparty establishment infrastructure was all in the bag to protect their little beautiful out outer breach team leader because they don't want him to come out to expose the entire op yeah, I mean, look, as all of these puzzle pieces get snapped into place by all of our district uh, organizations and tag teams, ragtag teams of, uh, you know, bad news bears out there for liberty. Um, we're, we're getting there. To, we're slow uh, rolling our way to the truth. <laughs> that's right. But, you know, the, what they always say, you know, lie gets halfway around the world before the truth gets its pants on. But I can tell you, these are athletic pants. <laughs> you, know, you guys do have a Ray Epps phone call. <laughs> Sorry. Ray Epps, please call us at 843 633 3592. I appreciate that I have another, another SF brother on. And uh, again, I wasn't quite surprised. And so uh, let's do it again sometime soon. Okay. Yeah, it's getting late. It's, too, it's going on two hours. No, man. I, Jeremy, I appreciate you. Stay in the fight. Be resilient. You still got a sense of humor. It's almost like we're in the team room, bro. <laughs> Except you're not you're not uh using too many expletives and thrashing me because I you know, usually as a team sergeant, you'd be thrashing me right now, telling me uh, uh how dumb of an officer I am. So I, I, I thank you for not doing that too much publicly. <laughs> okay so that it didn't sound like he was going to call back but if he does well obviously you know oh is he he didn't hear that part huh no he didn't he the line already ended but oh. don't worry i'll tell him <laughs> um so what is there anything else that you that you want to tell us what 
Like what can anybody out here do yeah. to help support you? So this, well, no, it's not support me. It's, just, it's, I think what's the call to action you're asking me of how do we fix this? So we've identified it. Like, we went to a lot more granular detail maybe than some people realized. So yeah. when you understand that the first layer of this onion is the Capitol police and the Capitol police board, we have to basically expose the names of all these folks so that they start squirming up to this point. They've been protected because if no one names you for your unlawful actions, you're not really concerned. So what are these names? The Capitol Police General Counsel, Thomas DeBias. Learn everything about him. Let every single member of Congress know that all J6 political persecutions start with Thomas DeBias. And then where do they continue from there? The Capitol Police Chiefs, Pittman. And then the current guy, Thomas Manger. So if we lift the veil of, hey, Manger, Pittman, and DeBias, I want all your cell phones. I want all your emails. I want all your paperwork with all of the J6 defendants. I want to understand and see your entire workflow on how you made your decisions on every, and criminalizing every single J6 defendant. Which Capitol Police officers did you talk to? I want all your conversations with Matt Graves and the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI and the DHS and the RNC and the DNC and every single individual that you may or may not have communicated with through any means available to include. I want to subpoena all your Twitter DMs. By the way, DeBias's Twitter account is at the nobody guy. The nobody guy. Okay. So take a look at him. Imagine if we subpoena all of their Twitter DMs, all of their Facebook and fake book internal messaging. If they have an Insta garbage account, right? How about we investigate everything about them? And guess what? They probably live in DC or they live in Virginia. How about we get the attorney general in Virginia to start to apply a little bit of interest in some of these federal actors that live in Virginia, right? Okay. A.G. Miaras. So as we shine light on them, they will start to squirm and make mistakes. As they start to squirm and make mistakes, more interest will be uh, shined on them. So bottom line is, if Barry Loudermilk's listening, the congressman that chairs the subcommittee on oversight, which has responsibility to provide oversight over the Capitol Police and the Capitol Police Board. If Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, is listening in, gentlemen, why don't you go ahead and subpoena everything public, private, whatever you can think of on those three individuals that I mentioned? And if you're really feeling frisky, why don't you go ahead and do the same with Julie Farnham, who's the who was the deputy Intel and Interagency Coordination Division person. Also, JJ Pickett. How about we go through this list? I I, I wrote a Substack article specifically as I handed it over to that committee on who needs to be looked at. Oh, let's go through the list. Mike Pence and his Secret Service detail. Pelosi, Alexandra, Michael Voss, Paul Irving, Terry McCullough, Zoe Lofgren. We talked about Jamie Fleet. The House parliamentarian at the time, the Senate parliamentarian, the, the attending physician of the Capitol, the architect, the general counsel, right? 
former chief Stephen Sun. We don't need to do that on him. He already provided them everything voluntarily because he has nothing to hide. Pittman, Tad Tobias, the inspectors general of the U.S. Capitol Police, Chad Thomas, J.J. Pickett, Dania Newell, Sean Gallagher, Michael Byrd, Sergeant Aconino Ganell, Harry Dunn, and the list goes on and on and on. You get my point, right? Yes. Imagine what we learn if we get all of their DMs from all their social media and everything that they communicated on from their cell phones, emails, phone calls, and then internal Capitol Police communications. Okay. Um, That's direct and fully exposed, in my opinion. Do you think that with Marjorie Taylor Greene calling for this new January 6th committee, would that unearth some of these things you're talking about? That will slow down what the oversight subcommittee has already done. Okay. It's basically, my opinion is it's great. Investigate. Marjorie, we already did the investigation. How about you like catch up to us instead of trying to start from scratch? Okay. I got you. Okay. So now you focus Marjorie, how about you focus on COVID select? How about you create Nuremberg 2.0 through the research and investigations that we military uh, veterans that is, have exposed already the last two and a half years. That's kind of your lane, Marjorie, and you're good at it. And you've already done it. How about you focus on that? Because January 6th, while I, you know, it's great that she's talking about it. Uh, she, if she's serious, she would have already exposed the Capitol Police Board. But what did she do instead? Protected Kevin McCarthy for the last 11 months so that he could continue to slow roll the investigation into January 6th. Okay. Now, you know, you're talking to a group of common citizens. Most of them are not lawyers. How can we go about subpoenaing these people? So, Rep. Barry Loudermilk, mm-hmm. Speaker Johnson, and basically, whatever resonated that, that we just spoke about, yeah, demand that they do it. Okay. And then tag those two individuals. Okay. The other thing you can do is, if you want to do it in the ticker, here's the phone number. They don't like it when I do this. They're like, Ivan, please don't. <laughs> please don't do this. I already told them that I would. So I'm like, sorry, you're not, you're not moving fast enough. <laughs> if you move <laughs> faster, then I wouldn't apply pressure. Exactly. But at the same time, I tell them, I'm going to push you to your almost breaking point because if you're broken, then we don't have a mechanism to get to the truth. So be mindful and respectful when you communicate with them and, and you know, demand it professionally, cordially. But like, hey, it's been 11 months and there's no excuse that, oh, but there was a speaker's fight and this and that. I don't care. So if I pull up my app and I give you the phone number for Congressman Loudermilk and his office, give him a call and tell him that you demand that he start doing that. One, he release the transcript of his seven hour interview with Yogananda Pittman. Okay. Seven hour interview with Yogananda Pittman so that people like me can look at it and be like, oh, wait, you forgot about this, 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 and this, and this. Let's bring her in again. And oh, by the way, 
this, what she said, leads us to Nancy Pelosi some more. So it would be nice to hear and hear and uh, I guess read what she said. So Loudermilk, Congressman Barry Loudermilk, 202-225-2931. Subpoena Pittman. You know what? Let me send you the substack of who needs to be subpoenaed and okay. all their documents. I wrote yes. a whole Substack article on it. Let's just make that go floating around again. Uh, where is it? Did you send me a text message? Yes. Is is your 813? Is that your number? Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. That right there. And let me open it up because for some reason it's. Some of my stuff goes behind a paywall after it's open for a, for like for a while. Let me open this thing up so okay. that it's available for everyone. Um, while you're doing that, I have a question for you from Manasu. Was Ivan the Green Beret that was on a clip sitting behind someone at a hearing and called out that person? She's wondering if that was you. You're like, yeah. So if you watch every hearing on C-SPAN or whatever, mm -hmm. uh. Yes, I am always at the hearing, okay. every single one practically. And the guy that they're referring to is, it could have been when uh, I approached Ray, uh, Chris Ray Epps, and I said, when are you going to stop violating our first, fourth, and fifth amendment rights, mm -hmm. Director Ray? That was yeah. one instance. Another instance was when I approached Dr. Walensky, the former director of the CDC, and I, I, I told her, I said, hey. I shook her hand and said, Ivan Raikland, I really look forward to your testimony and your involvement in murdering over 38,000 Americans due to the jab. What'd you say? Did she climb up? No, she kind of like uh, turned around. It went from a smile to like, uh, hmm. he got me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who else? I mean, uh, Ali Mayorkas. On three occasions, I told them, when are you going to take me off of that secondary quad S list on the Quiet Skies program? Yeah. Here's all the evidence that it's a total political hit job. And he's like, I can't do that right now. I'm going to testify. And I said, well, how about I how about I talk to your staff? And he's like, OK. So then I handed it to, to the staff. So that was when they testified in the Senate. And then the following day, they testified in the House. So the following day, I went there and said, hey, it's been 24 hours. I'm still on the quad S list. When are you going to take me off? And then later on, a few weeks later, I confronted them in the hallway. Hey, I'm still here. You have yeah. to take me off the quad S list. And then I think it was when I spoke with the TSA administrator who was testifying before appropriations committee. And I said, hey, Mr. Pekoski, you know why I'm on this list. Here's some evidence of me communicating with the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee. We can play this a couple of ways. You can either continue to have me on the quad S list, the Fourth Amendment rape list, mm -hmm. or and as a result of that, I'm going to be working with that committee to make sure that there are consequences financially for your department, in particular you. Maybe we bring you down to one penny or one dollar yeah. salary, right? Mm -hmm. Or you can just take me off of that list, and then I can focus my attention on folks like Christopher Ray Epps and Nancy Pelosi. 
granted, Pekoski is a Trump appointee, so he he was you know he's kind of like he kind of got it. He gave me his staff number, his staffer's number, and he basically said, um, "Why don't you go ahead and reapply to TSA PreCheck?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "Okay." <laughs> and so, within twenty minutes of applying, I was back on TSA Pre, and my clear was reinstated. <laughs> so, nice. you solve political issues politically. And so the way I see it is all J6 defendants are political defendants. Mm-hmm. And the only path forward to resolve that is politically. And worst case scenario, it will be through a pardon. But I want it. A pardon will not do justice to exposing those that created the political weaponization. Yeah. And that's going to come. I, mean, I guess one one good thing about creating a another J6 committee is to literally what we saw for two years from Pelosi, Cheney, and Benny Thompson and Mike Pence was, I mean, it was the Mike Pence J6 cover-up committee. It was to defend his illegal activity, right? And so what they did was defend the Fedsurrection. A new committee is going to be essentially the prosecution to prove the Fedsurrection. And that's when we can use that to then criminalize them. All could, of them. Could Loudermilk do that in his current committee, or would it be better to have a second? I mean, one argument would be if you create a new committee that's specifically focused in on that, uh, it brings the hype with it, right? Mm-hmm. And you can use it just like they did to use it to create the public opinion. If they make it glitz and glamour prime time, then in I guess in a sense. It changes the psyche, the the psyche of the of the country, but let's face it. I would want to see the following people on it: Jim Jordan and Jim Banks, because those were the two that were supposed to be on the original committee, and the, Jim Banks was the one that published the rebuttal already to the January sixth Select Committee through his own mechanism, and that's a that didn't get much airtime, but that was a pretty substantive report. That was published in December of 2022. Wow. Okay. It was the rebuttal to the J6 Select Committee. Massive. That mm-hmm. that's every J6er needs to read that. Yeah. In and, addition, uh, very louder milk needs to be on this new committee. And then I guess other people that have exhibited an interest in the J6 problem. So yeah. Troy Nels, right? Would mm-hmm. be another one. Let's see who else. I mean, obviously, Marjorie Taylor Greene has been uh, also helping out. Who else am I missing? Well, there's Matt Gates. There's a couple that just spoke Matt, yeah, up. Matt Gates, absolutely. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why I forgot his name, but absolutely. Matt Gates should be on that. So, and it needs to be joint. So, I think Ron Johnson would, or bicameral, Ron Johnson would be perfect to to represent from the Senate side. Ted Cruz. Uh Josh Hawley. I would say that every single senator that objected on January 6th at a minimum Hawley and Ted Cruz and then Ron Johnson, because Ron Johnson was the only person that had a hearing to expose the illegal election uh, from 2020 in December as chair of the Homeland Security Committee when he was chair back then. So at a minimum, those three. Okay. And uh, yeah, 
and then any others that actually voted to object. I think there was a total of seven. Tommy Tuberville would be a good one because he objected. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like Clay Higgins uh, has been making, asking at least some really good questions of Chris Ray. So he Clay Higgins. Be- I was in that hearing. Yeah. When, when uh, Clay was there. Yeah. So he might be another good one. Well, thanks. You gave us some good homework. So let me just make sure there's no more. And so as a reminder, as people come up with good ideas. Yeah. Every single person that I mentioned at least as a member of Congress, mm-hmm. I personally communicate with them. So, and again, everyone's busy, right? Everyone has their priorities. So my obviously priority has been exposing J6, Nuremberg 2.0, right? The CCP capture. In some instances, we're already moving, you know, we're getting the appropriate response. But I think, you know, if you come up with an idea that I haven't thought of and communicated to these folks, then like reach out to me. If there's stuff that I've put out that you have more granularity to, just let me know. And if you need me on anybody's show to explain to other influencers that are addressing this problem set, like for example, I heard that uh, Catherine Engelbrecht and and uh, what's his name, Greg Phillips, are starting yeah. to pivot to focus in on this. I'd be happy to come on and do exactly the same thing that I explained with you. But the full version of what I know about January 6th, it's long. It's about five hours for the run-up, the details, and then the subsequent aftermath and how do we resolve it. And I've done it twice. I did a whiteboard of it a few months back. Mm-hmm. And then I also did a five, five one-hour episodes with Tina Peters. So that part's up. Uh, Tina Peters has her own show. I don't, I'm sure you can find it somewhere. Now, if somebody wants to get in contact with you, if they have uh, a great idea, uh, how would they do that? Info at rakeland.com or direct message me on everything. I have everything open. Like uh, every it's on X, you know, Ivan Rakeland. It's I'm on telegram. I'm on truth, clout hub, gab, whatever, just whatever you're comfortable with. Okay. Well, well, that's truly incredible. I think all uh, the majority of us, hopefully all of us learned a little something today. I know I learned a lot and you gave us some homework to do. And Oh, by the way, let me, did you already publish that Substack or put it out? Oh no, but it's, it's in your, your, uh, name right here. Ivan Rakeland.substack.com. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So let me pin, I'm going to pin it. Okay, so particular one there. It's now the pinned substack. So it'll be the first one you see. Okay, perfect. That's pretty much been the blueprint. I I wrote that February 20th, and uh, I Mickey Whithoff, when she met with McCarthy, failed former Speaker McCarthy, yeah. handed it to him a copy of this and another document that lists the 40 victims uh, at the hands of you know federal federal officers, whether it was a, uh, you know, they were murdered, assaulted, battered, uh, or committed suicide to include members of the U.S. Capitol Police, mm-hmm. probably committed suicide because of the pressure from Yogananda Pittman would be, I guess, uh, more than anything. We and need an investigation that, into that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the two documents I provided the committee, the staff director, the uh, members of the committee. So uh, I think, you know, they've read it. And as far as I can see, they're they're working in the problem. And a lot of their time has been consumed with the 
deliberate release of these videos. Now I get it. It's not as fast as we want it, but they're moving, right? So we can't break, can't break people that are trying, right? Yeah. <laughs> we can only motivate them and, and continue to motivate them to go faster. Okay. I got you. And the way we do it is through this process, right? The reaching out to them and, and literally, you know, the, they'll get less demand if they speed up. Right. So the more contact we have with them, the more they're going to be inspired, if you will, to uh, react because they already want to do it. It's just a matter of letting them know, hey, don't take time off for Thanksgiving and go do your work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you guys just got a raise, right? So you have some work to do. All right. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to share um, before we head off to bed, most of us? <laughs> yeah, it's late. <laughs> No, I think that's good enough for now. Uh, if you want me back on, I'd be happy. Uh, I yeah. Sooner. Yeah, if Jeremy wants me back on, I think he was probably, it sounded like he was done and tired. So. <laughs> yeah, um, and you have a um, a podcast as well. Don't you go live on X a lot? Is there a... Yeah, so I, I have, yeah, I do a daily show from 4 to 4.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's called the Raikland Report. Okay. And... I cover about 5% of what I basically did the last day okay. in terms of my engagements up there, uh, whether it's at the courthouse, whether it's in Capitol Hill, you know, some stuff I, I disclose some other stuff just when they ask me, Hey, just don't put it out there. Um, Cause it, it usually, you know, a member of Congress, if they're working on something, they're like, Hey, we're working this, this, and this. And if you disclose it, it's going to, it'll, have a negative impact and if they're convincing enough i'll respect that if they're not i'll tell them no i'm not that's going to be i'm going to put that out <laughs> okay. yeah uh, so i try to respect transparency maximally but not slow down progress specifically for the number one issue for me which is the truth about january 6th absolutely i'm so glad that you are the one boots on the ground out there doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for doing everything you're doing. And if you ever need anything from me, the fusion cell, Jeremy Brown, um, please let me know. But yeah, we would love to have you on again. We've got to put these two green yeah, it, together it, again. It, it won't be two hours because we want to, you've got to start with the long version and then we'll just do updates. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Well, thank you very much for being here. Sounds and I'll, good. I'll Thanks, Jen, for sticking around for so long. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Cheers. Very good night. Thanks. Good night. Bye. Well, everybody, I hope uh, that we learned something. I sure did. There's a lot to unpack there, but um, I I know there's got to be a book written about this at some point, about his journey and learning all of these things all the different sources that he's had, even that interaction with John Sullivan uh, in the cafeteria and how he came to think, well, where can I pin this guy down at, right? The cafeteria while he's waiting for his verdict. So um, we'll see you tomorrow night on the Fusion Cell. Same time, same place. We have homework to do, people. You have some stuff to read, and you can also tune in to Ivan at 4 p.m. to 4.30 Easter and the Raikland Report on Twitter, and you can really get the newest updates of what's going on on Capitol Hill and regarding January 6th. 
So thank God for Ivan Raiklin and his investigations. Everybody have a wonderful night. Whatever you do, don't do nothing. World domination. Same old dream. The universe grows smaller every day. birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. It was a great word.